0: This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to a podcast of rare antiquities, episode 13. Today, we discuss the 1985 ball of batshit crazy Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Harry, welcome to the show, buddy. Welcome back. Yes, thank you. It's been a while. (laughs) We had a nice little sabbatical there. Yeah, nice little sabbatical there. Lots of opportunities to watch some rare antiquities over the holidays, right?
0: Sure. (laughs)
1: yeah yeah i know me neither man me neither i I had
0: no time whatsoever no no it wasn't i I think the three podcasts we did before with star wars just kind of left me in a self-induced coma a little bit took me a while to get out of it (laughs) yeah the
1: star wars of palooza was pretty intense so good to have a break but it's great to be back man
0: yes yeah i started to miss it too so glad to be back too
1: yeah so usually we start off the show, we reminisce a little bit, uh, do a little bit of history. I'm pretty sure that... What was your awareness of this film prior to watching it for this episode?
0: I think my first memory goes back to probably in the 80s. Like So you said, what year was this, 85? Yeah. 85. So probably for the Oscars of that year. I can't recall if this has any nominations. I'd be surprised if set design didn't get a nom, and we'll probably talk about that. Mm-hmm. I think that was my first memory of Brazil. I have never seen it until this podcast. It's always been on my list and I know it's been on their sci-fi lists, you know, out there. Oh, Brazil's like one of the better sci-fi movies of the past, you know, 50 years. So it's always been on my radar, but I just never got around to seeing it. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For me, I was never aware of this
1: film in the 80s or, you know, I became first aware in the early, sorry, the late 90s, I really got into the Criterion Collection set of DVDs. And this uh, particular set, Brazil, was released as a, as a three-disc DVD uh, with really cool packaging, but it just didn't stay in print for very long. So it was really hard to find. For me, it was more, I, I just wanted to get the damn set. I hadn't
0: even seen the movie and I, I wanted to get it because it was hard to get. So let me get this straight. You wanted to buy the movie... And you've never yeah. seen it. Yeah. You, you see, I, I'm, not, I'm not a guy who can do that. I can't just go splurge on a movie that I haven't seen. Too risky. Yeah. I've certainly learned my lesson.
1: I've definitely spent money on movies that I'd never seen, and I just don't do it anymore. But uh, that the collector in me back then just saw this. You know, knew it was good. Sci- you know, or was supposed to be a great sci-fi movie. I had to own it. So that's where it kind of came from for me. I, I eventually tracked down the DVD set, the three DVD set, which is gone now because who gives a shit about
0: dvds anymore i now have the one disc blu-ray which is very easy to find so so but you've got uh, like the weekend and bernie's duology in criterion i'm sure somewhere in the back of your house right there i'll tell you this (laughs) i
1: have the criterion collection dvd sets of armageddon and the
0: rock the michael bay masterpieces armageddon and the rock have criterion they went through that oh interesting
1: i know it uh it it sure does it's a hit to their to their credibility there's no question about that
0: yeah i think i have one criterion you know all funny fucking shit i have the rock criterion (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) i was saying i know i have one of them you know it was the rock it's the one with the the black packaging and you can barely see alcatraz on it right yeah, that's right. Oh, that's the only one I got. Yeah. After that, it was just like they had a really weird selection of movies that they went to try and do some kind of collection. Yeah. They were trying to go a little bit more mainstream there. And I don't know that I would have
1: picked those films. That's for sure. But uh, well, I'll I don't tell like you know
0: what. But I mean, like it, it still has to be worthy. <laughs> but that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a different
1: podcast. Anyway, much to my relief, uh, definitely did enjoy the film. But what I found interesting as well is some of the behind-the-scenes stories of this film. So we'll, we'll pepper some of that in along the way here. But I will hit you up with some with some trivia right now. Brazil was released in North America on December eighteenth, nineteen eighty-five, on one screen. That did grow over the coming weeks. Uh, it was actually released in the UK on February twenty-second of that year. So it was a full ten months overseas before it opened here. Its uh, domestic box office was around $9.9 million against a budget of $15 million. So didn't quite make back its, uh, its budget, which is uh, unfortunate considering some of the battles that kind of went on behind the scenes. The film stars a laundry list of well-known actors. Jonathan Price, Robert De Niro, Ian Holm, Bob Hoskins, among others, make up Uh, What I think is a very excellent cast, uh, obviously largely British cast. But the most interesting figure here is the director, Terry Gilliam. So Terry Gilliam is known, among other things, as the only non-British member of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, OK. Yeah. And for those fans of Monty Python out there, Terry Gilliam was the one who was responsible for all those really bizarre animation sequences that that sort of peppered the show there. So those sort of uh, he, he did it using stop motion uh, and different sort of photos sort of laid over each other and different drawings and whatnot. Among his uh, film credits, so he's also directed Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Twelve Monkeys, uh, The Fisher King, Time Bandits, uh, among other things. He is also tried unsuccessfully twice to film a movie about Don Quixote, which uh, was going to star Johnny Depp at one point, but the production was destroyed due to sandstorms in the desert. And there's actually a very interesting documentary out there on that one. So so that's uh, some of the stuff behind the scenes there. We'll we'll get into some of the other things uh, along, along the way. So what do you say we dive into Brazil? Yes, let's do it. All right. Brazil. Welcome to the future or alternate present, a place where bureaucracy reigns supreme. It's Christmas time, and working class man Archibald Buttle is enjoying the season in his small apartment with his family. That is until the SWAT team blows a hole in his ceiling and rolls him up like a cheap carpet on nonspecific charges. At the Ministry of Information, the machine chugs along. An endless expanse of shirts and ties hustle and bustle in endless monotony that would make the Borg jealous. The error of the arrest has reached the desk of Mr. Kurtzman, and that won't do. They don't make mistakes. He calls for his best man, Sam Lowry, to investigate the situation. But Sam is deep inside his own fantasy at the moment, dreaming about flying through the sky as some kind of cyberpunk anime angel. He sees a woman, ethereal, beautiful, and she's calling his name. Then he wakes up, and the only thing calling his name is his telephone. He's late for work. Sam gets on Mr. Kurtzman's problem like a bureaucrat on a fat stack of paperwork. Turns out the ministry has arrested the wrong man. Archibald Buttle was carried away instead of Archibald Tuttle. Kurtzman is relieved, but then he has the unhappy job of informing Sam that he's been promoted to information retrieval. It seems Sam's mother, a lady of some repute, has pulled some strings in order to further her son's career. During a lunch of Soylent Green, Pink and Grey with his mother and her friends, a terrorist bombing takes apart half the restaurant. But Sam is more concerned with his career, specifically that he prefers it at a dead standstill. He tells his mother he wants nothing. He just wants to keep his head down and coast. But his dreams suggest something else. Again, techno-angel Sam is battling the forces of oppression in an attempt to set free the mysterious ethereal woman who somehow bears a striking resemblance to Archibald Buttle's upstairs neighbor. In the real world, Sam's apartment is overheating badly, but there are no repairmen available in the dead of night. Except for rogue air conditioning specialist Archibald Tuttle. That's right, the man wanted by the Ministry for something or other. Tuttle moves with military precision and has the air conditioning repaired in a jiffy. With a wink and a smile, Tuttle is flying off into the night, on his way to help any broken air conditioners that may be in need. But that's not the end of the Buttle-Tuttle affair. A refund check has been issued at the Ministry for Buttle, and it's Sam's job to make the problem go away. Unfortunately, Mr. Buttle has expired and Sam takes the check to the widow. For some reason, she doesn't seem to be too happy with a small check in place of her husband's body. He can't understand what her problem is. After all, it wasn't his mistake. Then he catches a glimpse of a dream the woman only this time she's real sam rushes out of the apartment in search of the woman from upstairs but she's fled in a large garbage truck slash tank sam is unable to pursue but he has found her name jill Layton. armed with her name and appearance sam heads back to the ministry but is unable to retrieve her information His only solution except promotion to information retrieval he takes his information all the way to the top to his friend jack Turns out Jill is already on the Ministry's radar for contesting the arrest of Mr. Buttle, and Jack is none too pleased at having dispatched the wrong man. The Ministry thinks she's a terrorist, just like Tuttle. And, well, it's a little confusing for all parties involved. Anyway, Sam leaves with at least a little more information than he began with, and as he steps from the elevator into the lobby, there she is, At the porter's desk continuing her quest to find archibald buttle after a bit of a misunderstanding sam ushers her out of the ministry and he can't believe he is sitting in the truck next to the girl of his dreams she's hardly as enamored, though after a little cat and mouse through the streets with the security men from the ministry the truck crashes and jill flees from sam through a department store after an uncomfortable run-in with his mother's friend another terrorist bomb rips through the store seems to have originated from jill's direction this only helps crystallize her guilt in the view of the ministry Sam has burned his bridges and has no more leads to follow. What luck, then, that Jill herself has tracked him down. The two retreat to his mother's empty house where they can lie low for a while and get to know each other. Sam heads into work the next day and, with some fancy hacker skills, manages to kill Jill Layton in the computer. He heads back to his mother's house, and there is the girl of his dreams. And they fall in love and live happily. Well, at least they manage to get laid. The troops arrive in the morning. Sam is taken into custody. Blackness falls and gunshots. Sam is strapped to a chair, some menacing-looking tools all laid out next to him. It looks like someone is going to be going all information retrieval on his ass, Marcellus Wallace style. His old friend, Jack, enters to do the deed, but just as he raises the tool, pull it to the head, and it's none other than Mr. Tuttle, terrorist and air-conditioning repairman extraordinaire, there to lead the rescue. A daring extraction, to say the least. Bombs exploding and bullets flying. Sam and Tuttle fight through the streets and Tuttle vanishes in a cluster of newspapers. Weirdness ensues. Well, a lot more weirdness anyway, and things are not as they seem. Sam is spiraling through layers of consciousness, settling on an idyllic scene in the countryside where he and Jill can live happily ever after. But Sam is still strapped in the torture chair. His mind is gone. His struggle to escape the inevitable is over. The end. So there we have it, Harry. That's Brazil or some version of it. I don't know that I even need to ask the question
0: about the plot synopsis here, but does that do it justice at all? No, it doesn't do it justice. Uh, But I will say this. Based on that synopsis, harking back all the way to UHF, I really have no idea how this movie got made. If that was a pitch, here is my synopsis. Let's make this movie. I'd be saying, ah... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so it's like Robert De Niro. It's like you wanted to be a writer, but you blew it. <laughs> you know,
1: <so laughs> oh man, that is that that is absolutely true. I, I can't imagine a studio executive in the eighties financing this film. And and there was a lot of behind the scenes items there. There were There were different studios involved along the way that did want to buy the picture. And a lot of that was on the strength of Terry Gilliam's name. Uh, He was coming off of Time Bandits, which did okay. Obviously famous from Monty Python. So they weren't nobodies. And a lot of the executives in some of the interviews that I watched, uh, they all said they could kind of see that
0: there was some genius there, but didn't really know what the hell to do with it. It's very weird. But I mean, like, as you said, going off of his name and kind of what the point of the movie, if we can even nail it down, I think that's what really got the movie made. It's not really about what the synopsis was. Yeah, that's right. It's all under
1: the surface here, for sure.
0: Sorry, I do want to say one thing, though. Yeah. Since we're kind of talking about just preconceived notions. So, I mean, you mentioned that synopsis that gives you someone who's never seen the movie before, they're going to go on that and they're saying, fuck this shit, I'm out of here. Yeah. Not for me. But I will say one thing. When I popped in that Blu-ray, you lent me. I loved, absolutely loved, what is it, the screen while you're waiting mm-hmm. to play the movie. Yeah. Because I was waiting for my wife to join me to watch the movie and I was just sitting back and just, it was so ominous. I got a completely different feeling for what I thought this movie was going to be about because I knew nothing going in and what I got. So, that's that's kind of interesting as well. I got kind of almost like a Hitchcockian vibe. Just listening to the loading screen, like waiting to press the uh, the play button. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's hard to put your finger on, right? It's very evocative. That mood really comes through. So, uh, good good job to the Criterion Collection for uh, nailing the menu screen. That's that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you uh, you had talked about the Oscars. Brazil was nominated for. Best Art Direction, Set Decoration. I did not win the award, but it it was nominated for that. And it, it was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay as well it, didn't, it did not win but, but um, so a couple of nods there to what, what are probably the most striking aspects of the film the writing and uh, and the set decoration so good to see you got a little bit of recognition there so I'll, I'll talk a bit about a little bit about the behind the scenes stuff before we kind of get into the meat here the production of the film itself doesn't have a whole lot of story behind it it was more in the release of the film so as I said it came out in the UK in uh, February of 1985. 10 months before its US release. Now, when it came time to release the film in the United States, the studio, having seen Gilliam's 2 hour and 35 minute cut, didn't really know what to do with it. They wanted the film cut down to under 2 hours and uh, have some uh, have some things retooled, and Terry Gilliam just flat out refused. He wasn't going to make any changes. And a very public battle between Terry Gilliam and the uh, head of the studio, Sid Scheinberg, I believe was his name, broke out and they kept going back and forth. Uh, the studio wanted him to cut it down. Gilliam refused. And what had happened eventually is uh, Gilliam turned in a cut of the film, which came in at two hours and ten minutes. And the studios wanted something that was two hours and five minutes and they held Terry Gilliam in breach of contract and then took over, exercised their rights in the contract to take control of the film and do whatever they want with it. Yes. So what they were going to do was uh, recut it, bring it down to a a length that they thought was more reasonable, make the film a little bit more palatable to commercial audiences. And uh, what Gilliam did was really interesting. He was uh, scheduled to do a seminar at uh, film school and he was going to... Show a, a screening of the film. Uh-huh. This got advertised all over campus. Universal got wind of it and they shut him down. But they did say he could run a clip from the film at the seminar. So the clip that he ran started about two frames after the start and ended about two frames before the ending of the film. So he ended up showing the whole film. Uh, and then this started happening. He started doing this all over and it picked up sort of a cult underground following. He even took out an ad in uh, Variety. A full page ad for $1,500 asking when the studio was going to release his film. The studio eventually relented and the version that we see of Brazil was released in theaters. So. Full cut. Yeah. Quite the interesting play there. Yeah. The studio cut of the film uh, never saw the light of day in the big, in the big screen, but was released on syndicated television uh, in the years following. And it is also on the Criterion collection set i tried sitting through this cut it's about 94 minutes long it's also known as the uh, love conquers all version and this is a great this is the phantom edit the phantom edit exactly (laughs) yeah that's the phantom edit and it is a great big pile of shit is what it is it's actually (laughs) it's a really good example of what can happen in the editing room right There's no emotional through line. The ending is different. Some sequences are out of place. Kind of guts the core of the movie. There's there isn't there isn't any feeling. A lot of the subtext is gone. It's barely even watchable. I think it's an interesting example. I mean, a lot of people they go to movies and they don't realize the power that editing has on a film. You know. Everybody makes a big deal about Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress. But the editing room is really where that movie is going to be a success or oh, a failure. percent I think so. Yeah.
0: Oh, I mean, I think it's a, it's a blend of a lot of things, right? But I mean, that is a huge part. Yeah. Last piece
1: of trivia I'll, uh, I'll throw at us here just before we uh, get into the scene by scene is uh, the title of the film. Do you have any inclination of where the title of the film comes from? Not really. I'm assuming it's a song. Yeah, that is correct. It is a song. So we do hear that song. Yeah, because the song uh, is in points. there, right? So, Yeah. Legend has it, Gilliam was on the beach in the UK and the weather was shitty and he sees a guy sitting on the beach trying to enjoy the day and on and the guy's the stereo going and this is the song that's playing. And he's inspired by this scene because there's this guy and there's nothing he can do. The weather's shit. It's a crappy day at the beach. There's this guy having to go at it anyway. And this is the song that was playing. So that was the feeling. And it was just became Brazil.
0: Oh, odd. Yeah, odd. I still really don't even get the significance. I guess if it's just something personal for the director, that's fine. It kind of threw me off a little bit during the movie. I was going to bring that up mm-hmm. a later. It just felt a little weird to me. But anyways, that's okay.
1: Well, it, it is a little weird, and because it sort of comes from a personal place. I mean, I guess the whole movie is so damn weird that uh, anything weird doesn't necessarily feel feel out of place here, but... All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the uh, the scene, the scene by scene blow uh, of the of the film here. So we get the scene of the television. The deputy minister is being interviewed on TV talking about the recent terrorist bombings in a different world in 1985 than today. But this exchange here, I thought I thought was pretty interesting if we get introduced sort of to a, a state that's been fighting terrorism for so long that it's just sort of a day to day occurrence here. Yeah, it doesn't Um, shock him anymore. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't shock anybody. I mean, what did you think of this introduction to this world? What, uh, how does this set the stage for you as a viewer? And what's your impression of the world just from this initial interview?
0: First feeling I got, I got a sense of I was watching something like Robocop or Starship Troopers. That's satire. Like they're poking a joke at... This potential future or present or whenever this supposed to take place, uh, this other universe or with this world. And it looks like the people really don't, as you said, don't take the terrorists seriously because it's a day to day thing. Like, I think he even uses the joke. They're just upset or something like they're I forget what the actual dialogue is, but uh, it's almost like it's a competition to him. It's like, uh, yeah, Yeah. no big deal. This is just like a sporting event.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly the, you know, the the verbiage that he uses there. He says, they just can't stand seeing the other fellow win is the the line. And yeah, he, he makes some sports references there. My favorite part of that exchange there is... When he says, you know, what uh, the bombing campaign is now and it's like 13th year. How, how would you attribute that to when he says be- beginner's luck, you know, after <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. 13th year? It's like,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's like beginner's <laughs> luck. I thought that was hilarious. Very British deadpan humor. I thought it was great. Yeah. But yeah, the, so far, you know, we see that sort of storefront just explode and nobody nobody really cares. So. We get to the inside of this room, all of these pieces of paper, you know, going through the printing press, uh, the weird looking computers and a bug falls in and the name changes on all of this. uh, What turns out to be an arrest warrant from Tuttle to to Buttle. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that this was an interesting showpiece here. I mean, you obviously have this well-oiled machine. You know, it looks a bit anachronistic, but everything's going. But all it takes was one squashed bug to set into motion the events of the entire film. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting, you know, presentation there, uh, you know, showing just how, you know, useless this this bureaucracy is, if it can't even catch. Yeah,
0: it's like the Jedi Order. We talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just took totally. one squashed buck named Jar Jar Binks to kind of turn, you know, yeah. <laughs> set Palpatine free.
1: <laughs> to, to turn the whole mother on its head, Yeah. <laughs> Only Jar Jar did not get squished like the Bantha Pudu that he is, unfortunately. <laughs> hey
0: man, well, no bad mouthing Jar
1: Jar. On shit. Uh, so we get to the flat. You know, it's Christmas time. It's dark, uh, but just sort of a regular family having uh, having a nice. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's I don't think it's Christmas Eve, but they're just hanging out. And uh, next thing you know, boom! All these troops uh, storm the place. I, I love Shopping the whole. Court. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, that's right. <laughs> Uh, Kick the place in, kick the doors in, smash the window, come in through the damn ceiling. And, you know, in three zips, this guy's packed up in a straitjacket, masked kind of horrifying imagery of the power of the police here. And and just sort of the bureaucratic uh, normalcy that, you know, whoever that guy is there,
0: he's given the wife the receipt. Sign here, sign here, sign here. Um, And that's the satire. Yeah. Right there. That's kind of what I was pointing that out. I I started laughing at that, like the order and the requirement for receipts and paperwork and all that bureaucratic nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. It's very
1: funny. And I love the little detail where uh, how diligently the wife signs. As soon as the papers in front of sign here, like she's signing that paper, like she means it. Yeah. Because that's, that's so ingrained in this in this culture. I thought that was a really uh, good detail. Uh, and then I, I love when they're trying to fix, after this, the repair guys come in there. They're trying to fix the
0: hole in the woman's apartment upstairs where they, where they busted in. That was such it's, a perfectly cut circle, too. Yeah. It bugged me. I'm saying, no way someone's cutting that that perfect.
1: Well, I'm sure they have a, a ceiling slash floor cutter that cuts perfect circles. For sure they've got that. Okay, maybe. I don't think they're just like sticking a chainsaw through and sort of haphazardly... <laughs> You know, doing that, they've got that stuck down to a science. They're
0: busting in on people's ceilings at least 10 times a day. Uh, They should have done. I want an isosceles triangle. (laughs) 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 Not (laughs) equilateral. (laughs) Isosceles. Isosceles. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One thing before we move on beyond the apartment, I just wanted to mention that something I wrote down is that everybody seems, and you'll get this a little later in some other scenes, is everybody seems addicted to TV like the TV's there, but they even have these kind of magnifying glasses over the TV so they can really zoom in. And it's like all over the house. It's a someone taking a bath. They got the TV there. They can't escape it. Um, That's right. I found that quite interesting. And I also wanted to already start giving props to the art direction and the set design here. With all mm-hmm. the kind of knickknacks. Kind of reminded me of Doc Brown's place. Yeah. Like all these knickknacks everywhere. And, you know, it's supposed to be, I guess, some kind of possible future, which is extremely outdated now. <laughs> but.
1: Yeah. Well, for sure. And and Sam's apartment is, <laughs> is kind of the, uh, definitely has the Doc Brown feel to it with the automated shower and the toaster and the the coffee maker and, and everything, of course, going wrong, right? So, yeah. but yeah, definitely the set design is great, packed with little details, and I love the t- the televisions with the, the shitty magnifying glass over top of it to, you know, this is your big screen TV. It's just holding a magnifying glass in <laughs> yeah, front of exactly. your shitty little screen TV. Yeah. yeah. Cool little detail for sure. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I also like the detail where they fix, they're trying to fix the hole and she's like, well, obviously there's Jill saying there's got to be some mistake, Mr. Buttle, he's harmless, right? And they're like, we don't make mistakes. And they put the manhole cover in and straight through, right? Uh, I love the line. It's like, oh, well, they've gone back to metric without telling us. I thought that was uh,
0: uh, pretty funny. So,
1: even the bureaucracy can't get the bu- the uh, bureaucracy right. So I Told you, man, um, that isosceles triangle would have fixed it all right there. That's true, would have, because uh, it probably wouldn't have just fallen straight through. Exactly. Might have been hard to get the SWAT team through an isosceles. LAUGHTER <laughs> So we get to the ministry of, of information. It sounds very ominous to me, even though it, it all it's, you know, sort of a representation of bureaucratic uselessness. Right. But ministry that controls information, you know, what type of society is this? You know, how are people living? If there's a government body that controls Information. So again, we're kind of getting some of the world building here. And obviously the ministry is very important piece of the whole film. So we get the scene uh, in the office there, the hustle and the bustle, just sort of endless array of desks, people working away at some shit or other. And uh, there's Ian Holm as uh, Mr. Kurtzman. I love Ian Holm. I always get excited when I see him turn up dressed like a boss, looking over proceedings here. I thought it was great. As soon as he ducks into his office, I mean, nowadays, Everybody's flipping over to the Internet, porn, movie sites. You know, here it's uh, watching TV as
0: soon as he uh, as soon as he leaves scene there. What's happening is, is people are so want to watch this TV uh, program Mm -hmm. every chance they can get. I don't know. Is it showing that how totalitarian this government is or this ministry is or this system is? Because it's showing how the system is in place right here. Mm -hmm. The hustle and bustle, as you said, you see the machine run, which is everybody without a break. And then the minute the boss isn't looking, they're just, they want to escape.
1: The other side of that as well is depending on, you know, your opinion of television. And there's lots of artists that have felt this way that, you know, feel that television is just a brain rot. It's just a way to kind of keep the masses under control. You don't think you sit there and you, you turn off your brain. So is that commentary on on the society as well yeah. where everybody is it
0: control or and like you know because you see later people are so you know the, the ladies are so into how they look and consumerism yeah. and things like that so is it control and uh, propaganda and advertisement the way of the government to have control or is is the director trying to and writer terry Gilliam saying this is escapism they need to escape
1: Well, and I I mean, there's no reason why it can't be both. Uh, Obviously, escapism is a theme as we get deeper into Sam's story uh, where he wants to escape. And so obviously that's, you know, if everybody's sort of in the same boat, but the thing that they escape to is just more control. Right, because they're just—they're not asking any questions. They're just, you know, melting away into some crappy TV show. Right. The error of the arrest comes to Mister Kurtzman. Uh, he's looking for Sam. He calls for for Lowry, and this is sort of where our introduction to uh, to Sam is. Uh, and we see him in his dream state, flying in the sky, wearing sort of a weird armored superhero-like padded outfit. Birdman, the first X Men. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Birdman, the first X-Man. I mean, I thought this was a very
0: interesting costume design and some interesting cinematography here. It's good cinematography. I don't mind the costume, but my God, the makeup and the hair. Very 80s. Very 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I, I, was that David Bowie? There? Yeah, I wearing the David Bowie there. The
1: hair and the makeup sure uh, dates itself. But you know, I mean, I love the suit. I thought it looked very cool and the wings looked very cool. What did the costume tell you? About this fantasy, this dream.
0: Even though his main fantasy is to be with the woman. But he feels like he needs to save her, but also fight against his instinct is to... F- he, he feels oppressed. So he yeah. wants to be that superhero, that strong person who will fight against the system, fight against oppression.
1: I agree. I think it's definitely evocative of a... You know, of a a superhero outfit. Also, you know, I mean, it has the angel type of imagery to it as well. So, you know, there's some I guess you could get into some savior metaphors there as well. And then, you know, as we get into some of the other dream sequences, we kind of see, you know, metaphors for what he's fighting against. But, you know, we don't get a whole lot in this initial one. He wakes up again. This is where we get the scene in his apartment there, the Doc Brown machinery that's uh, i love when he's trying to eat the toast and it just keeps flopping out of the way of his his tongue there good good bit of physical comedy from from jonathan price he's overslept he heads into work there he meets his uh, his old friend jack
0: right Uh, and i just wanted to say here as he's going to work and his place at work whether it's in his apartment or the ministry or all those buildings you know first shout out to the beautiful beautiful set design as you said mm -hmm. an oscar nomination cinematography as well as set design correct that is correct. Art direction and Art direction. set decoration. Yeah. So, I mean, well-earned. Funny thing is, is I felt this was kind of, and I even get this feeling even more so later, it felt very Burton-esque in a sense. I felt mm-hmm. like it was kind of like, it had that feeling of me watching a cross between, even though it's the same kind of universe and inspiration, and, you know, the first Batman movie and mm-hmm. even the animated mm-hmm. Batman show, yeah. which are kind of like obviously correlated, but it felt like kind of a cross between those two. And yeah, like, it has that Dick uh, Tracy and stuff like that, right? So,
1: yeah, yeah, the the dark sort of Art Deco
0: 1930s look yeah, art deco, to it. Yeah. yeah, that's the word. Absolute for. Yeah, beautiful costumes are great. Set decoration was amazing. Yeah, first shot out, and I think that was a strength. That's the one true strength of this movie. Is I didn't get tired of watching this just because yeah. of the set decoration.
1: Yeah, it, a lot of this movie does rest on the shoulders of, of the set decoration. That's uh, an important character in and of itself, and I, I think that. You know, without it being as strong as it is, uh, you know, probably the, the you know the movie just doesn't work probably at all if, yeah, if it's I not as good so. as it is. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Very important. Yeah. Uh, so we meet Sam's friend Jack, uh, played by Michael Palin. Expertly, I thought I really liked his performance here. Uh, Michael Palin uh, again, another member of Monty Python, and actually a, little, a neat side note in the behind-the-scenes documentary that was made at the time of the filming of Brazil, and it was just a you know short. Documentaries, some cast interviews. And in every interview with Michael Palin, he's hemming it up the whole time. You know, they're intervie- they're conducting the interview and he's fake talking into the phone for the interview. He's, he's pretending to be like a servant in the garden talking about how Michael Palin thinks uh, about, you know, what he thinks of this movie. So this guy's just a bizarre character just on his own. So he's the yeah. British Nick Cage? Yeah, he's the British Nick Cage with, <laughs> with more talent and fewer tax problems, I think. <laughs> <is>. <laughs> I'd love to see a Nicolas Cage. cage. I love Nicolas Cage, man. I want to see a behind-the-scenes documentary that's got Nicolas Cage hamming it up. Let me tell you. So if there's a behind-the-scenes documentary on uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, (laughs) somebody send me the link because I want to watch that.
0: No, they've got that guy with the Kickstarter. He's doing that Superman Lives thing with Nick Cage, that documentary. I think it's already out, and uh, I—
1: We got to do that on the podcast. We got to watch that, Jim. I can see it.
0: (laughs) No, no. I want to go to Nick Cage and say, let's film it. Superman lives
1: now. Yeah, Superman lives now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) With the (laughs) word now in capital letters. (laughs) Like an older, broke Superman, eyes all bugging out of his head and shit. I'd watch it. No
0: question. I think it's going to be better than what's
1: coming. (laughs) Let's just say that. Well, that'll be another episode. That's for sure. Anyway, so back to Brazil. You get the impression right away that Jack is a foil here for Sam. He's kind of become everything that Jack had. They sort of started in the same place. You get the impression where Jack has been very successful, married, family, careers taken off, and Sam is, you know, just sort of kept his head down, doesn't want to get noticed, and likes it that way. Yeah, this is tapestry. Yeah, it is tapestry. Yeah, it is tapestry. (laughs) Yeah. Only he likes it this way.
0: Yes, exactly. This is
1: tapestry if Picard was like, like, yeah, you know, jackpot. Got it. So Jack gets to the office. So as he's as he's talking with Jack, Sam sees in the uh, in the TV monitor, the security feed, he sees the face of the woman from his dreams. And there's uh, Jill at the porter's desk. And she's contesting the arrest of Archibald Buttle and in sort of classic British bureaucracy tradition, she doesn't have the right stamps, the right signatures and all of this. So the porter is not trying to help her. He's just trying to get her to go away. And that's kind of the microcosm for the machine here is the bureaucracy has kind of been constructed in order to avoid problems, not to help, you know, the people who live under this government. Right. So I thought that this was interesting to to kind of get a look at, uh, you know, it's a small thing. And, you know, we've all stood in a line somewhere and dealt with some asshole who's, you know, you don't have the right signature on something. We've all kind of been in a similar situation. I mean, this is, you know, kind of blown up and this is the whole movie uh, at this point. So but she's gone. He can't find her. He, he heads up to uh, to the office. And figures out that there has been a mistake in the arrest there. And uh, I I love Ian Holm here. He's, you know, it's the same thing. He's just, he can't deal with the fact that it's not going
0: exactly according to plan. Something's out of place. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's just like the littlest thing just disturbs him. I have a refund check. I I can't deal with this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's like, oh my God. But that's the satire. Yeah. They're just completely intertwined by the system. There's yeah. no other thought. It's work, it's the TV, it's the consumerism, there's nothing else. There's yeah. no other thought here. As you said, it's dystopian future, right? Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. I mean, I think Ian Home does a, does an excellent job here. And I mean, there's still a look of relief on his face when Sam's got everything punched in, he's got the right invoices, he's signed all the forms, and, and he's like, oh man, you know what a relief. You know, like any shitty boss is horrified at the prospect of his best employee getting promoted, and again... Um, starts to freak out because sure enough, Sam is up for promotion, which he always says he turned down, but it uh, looks like in this case, he's not going to be able to do that.
0: And this is where we, uh, <laughs> I would have liked it that, that he actually, when he freaked out about the refund check, that he actually kind of went lost all control of his bodily functions, like an alien. <laughs> and he got hit. And he was like, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Starts freaking out, spitting out milk out of his, uh, out of his eyeballs and shit, man. I love Ian home. He's not that good. He's good. He's pretty good, man. He's good. But
0: okay. He's good.
1: He's what somebody want okay. me to say. He's not. We'll agree. Yeah. We're arguing over him being good. So yeah. <laughs> yes. we can move on from there. So we, we get the sort of a small scene here of uh, Sam talking to his mother while she's in with her plastic surgeon. And again, a cool makeup effect. We see the doctor just grabbing her face and pulling it back. I think you know where he, we got the inspiration for Star Trek Insurrection. Star Trek Insurrection. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> only much more effective here. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> I love that. He's just like pulling her face there and like, you know, clipping it into those clips at the side of her head. Uh, man, I thought that was really, really cool makeup effect there. It yeah. uh, was neat. So his mother's, you know, we, we don't know exactly who she is, but she knows everybody. As she says, she knows everybody well uh, she, connected, yeah, well connected. So she sort of orchestrated his uh, his promotion, <laughs> but more for her satisfaction. Status. Yeah. Yeah. Her status. She doesn't want to have a failure of a son. So she has to elevate him. For anything else and just to be able to tell her friends that uh, he's a success. And again, um,
0: like there's another way for him, Sam, saying he has no control. That's why he was so against having any thought of being promoted because he wanted to say no to something.
1: Yeah, that's right. Even if it was, you know, something that would be his success, you know, he's... I mean, it's interesting because he he's so pro-establishment to this point. You know, is obviously very good at his job, but he rebels against his mother. So in that way, like he's he's got that anti-establishment in him already. So they go for lunch at the restaurant. And I love this scene here in yeah. particular. They, uh, you know, they're picking up food from the menu and they just get these blobs of paste uh, served to them with pictures of the food that they're eating. Soylent green only works, really. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know I could live in a world like this or it's just a pile of slop. It's like the Matrix where they got that goo that they just comes out of that
0: valve to eat. They must have been taking a dump when they thought of that shit. Yeah, they must have.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Different colored dumps. And yeah. This is what. But I thought of the world building here. Like, What kind of a world are we living in here where <laughs> this is what people eat? And this is an upscale restaurant either. I mean, I can only imagine what people are eating at home. Like poor people. This is what the rich people are eating you know, what does it say about about this world? I mean, it gives me the idea that everything kind of outside the walls has fallen apart. The food production has got to be some kind of, you know, just ultra refined factory
0: process. You know, like real food doesn't even exist anymore. That's kind of the impression that I got here. Yeah, there's that. I would say that that's probably the main point that they were going with. I mean, you, one could even think that, oh, this is maybe something futuristic and fancy yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but I hate caviar, but I mean, it's it's a high-end delicacy, but it's yeah. a bunch of mush, right? Fucking fish eggs, so it's like... Well, it's real food, though. I mean, like... I'm saying it's something like that. He I see what comment- you're saying. They're make- he's making commentary of the upper class. They'll eat slop if they think it's fancy, or if society tells them it's fancy, that it is yeah. upper class, they'll eat anything. If the, yeah. if the establishment, the system says, this is what's hip and in, you're going to eat it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way, but I mean, that is a good point for sure. They're eating it because they're being told that this is the thing to do.
0: Yes. I mean, I understand your point and agree with it too. It's definitely possible that there's really nothing else there. It's just baby food for everybody because it's the easiest way to manufacture control the people because yeah. maybe everyone the, to the to the government to the bureaucracy every citizen is just a baby and in the end it's true even in, in our society so well yeah that's right
1: yeah so they they order lunch they eat lunch what i love here is so uh, there's a terrorist bomb just blows out a big hole in the restaurant a huge explosion there's blood and people are dead and the you know place is on fire it's just absolute chaos and they just kind of go about their lunch yeah. You know, not a big deal. They they just continue on with their conversation. So commonplace that even in the restaurant, doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, a lot of movies do this. You know, even going back to Star Wars, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy just got shot there. It's no big deal. It's part of the everyday life. In Star Wars,
1: that was kind of like, because they were kind of doing the Old West Saloon, right? So somebody getting gunned down in the saloon, not a big deal, right? Yeah. And then to kind of like blow it up where like half the place is gone and, you know, you got to pick bomb debris out of your lunch, I love the line there is, uh, you know, his mom's friend is like, aren't you going to do something about these terrorists? And he's like, it's my lunch hour.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's like, no, it's it's my lunch hour. Nothing I can do. Another thing uh, I think the mom's friend did, uh, I love the, because again, they're talking about their facelifts and makeup and stuff. And she said, oh, acid is used for a subtle shading. Picturing (laughs) the Joker. So when that explosion was happening, I was hoping that Jack Nicholson was going to be coming in and, you know, to the Prince song Party Man, you know.
1: <laughs> you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. <laughs> yes. I love how, and then she just, like, every time you see her along, she just keeps keeps getting more fucked up as the, as the picture goes along. She's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, my condition has a condition, or my complication has a
0: complication. Yeah, she and, lost uh, her nose eventually, didn't she? Yeah, she does lose her nose eventually, yeah. Yeah. But I want to ask you a question now. Yeah. So something we haven't mentioned, and it's so obvious part of the set design, and it's really evident mostly here, but you can see it in all the apartments and the workplace. But it's so glaringly obvious in this restaurant scene are all these interconnecting ducks. Yeah, the ducks. Yeah, the ducks. I don't know if you were going to talk about it later, but I I thought I'd bring it up here because I just wrote it down here because it was so blatant. Like they're coming down in between all the tables. It's not streamlined. It's in everybody's way. What is the director trying to say here? I wasn't sure. I mean, they, and the ducks, like it gets brought up
1: right at the start of the film too. Where like don't, you know, don't tamper with the ducts and more happens with the ducts as we go. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure. I mean, part of it could be, you know, like the visual of it obviously is, you know, it's evocative of, you know, it's sort of futuristic, but you know, it's dirty. It's not organized behind the scenes. You know, we need all this shit all over the place to keep the machine, you know, the, the machine running. Don't worry. It's all necessary. So. You know, don't notice it. It's okay. It's sort of emblematic of, you know, this world isn't really very well put together. It is kind of falling apart behind the scenes and it's starting to kind of creep into it's coming out of the periphery into the forefront. That's what it made me think of or, or feel about this world is things are starting to come apart and it's just getting more and more prominent.
0: What did you think? That was definitely part of it. I think there was one point, uh, especially when they were talking about the refund check, Ian Holmes character, and, and he's getting Sam to do the dirty work. Yeah. And he actually, I think at one point, correct me if I'm wrong, he actually goes to the duct in his office and he goes, shh, sh- he like shushes it. Yeah. So I thought maybe this is like either, uh, the government's way of, Being everywhere, like the all encompassing Mm. power, it's like Spectre, it's like the octopus, the tentacles are going everywhere and it's showing the government's reach and hold over everybody.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think you definitely are onto something there, you know, like, yeah, they're everywhere and don't fuck with it. So we get to Sam. uh, We see him in his uh, in his apartment here, and you know he's he's dripping hot, or he's dripping with sweat. The room's hot. You know, thermostat's not going anywhere. Tries calling central services, and he just gets a recording. You know, can't take any service calls, and he's like, "This is an emergency," but he he can't get through. Falls asleep in his refrigerator, which I thought was kind of a you know funny scene there. But then he gets a call on the phone, and this is where we get uh, introduced to Robert De Niro as uh harry tuttle and one thing that really struck me about de niro in this role is is how he moved right i loved how he moved like he has the gun drawn or he comes in you know he looks all tactical and shit like he's coming in there like a commando i thought this was uh great you know you know de niro in his younger days you know he he
0: definitely had a physicality to his to his performances back in the day <laughs> really i got a completely different sense like he just okay what did you get i got a sense like he didn't know what he was doing the body language there wasn't. I know that he was portraying it the way you're describing it. He acted yeah. it that way, but it, it didn't seem convincing. It seemed like uh, somebody who didn't know how to present himself tactically. It's interesting you say that because I was going to say like
1: that it did kind of feel that way as well. Like he was moving in a way that, yeah, like a commando wouldn't actually move. But it was like his imp- his impression of how a commando would move. Yeah. But I thought that was what like he was going. That's what he was kind of going for was that look. But I really I really liked it. I really liked it. And like he's, you know, he's using that weird screwdriver to get the panel on the on his wall open there. And then again, we get you know, you see behind the, you know, the guy's apartment's pretty organized there. You go behind that panel and it's just a mess of shit and wires and all kinds of crap. And that's, you know, part again, when I was saying like behind the scenes, there's no organization, no, no rhyme, no reason. Right. Everything's just a just a fucking mess. So Tuttle fixes the air conditioning. Uh, We get a little bit of insight into his character there. You know, he used to be official, but you know, he says he gets into the business. He got into the business for the excitement, travel (laughs) light, get in, get out. Uh, That was pretty funny for you know, like an air conditioning repairman. You know, part of the world building of this. You know, this guy who who, again is kind of breaking away from the the system, sick of the paperwork, sick of the bureaucracy. He just wants to do what's necessary and and get out. It's very much who who Sam wants to get out. yeah. Yeah. As he's finished there, I love the introduction of the two uh, Central
0: Service uh, repairmen. Before we move on, I just had a thought. I got a Fight Club vibe here, in a sense. Did this Tuttle guy, to Sam, even really exist? Well, that's interesting. Is he really Um, expressing his own inner desires by imagining Tuttle? I think he's definitely
1: seeing his own inner desires. There's no question that Tuttle is who Sam wants to be. So, yeah, Tuttle is... Tyler Durden yeah. for Sam. Yeah, is he yeah. Tyler Durden? It's interesting. I never thought of that. I guess it's certainly possible. I don't know that... Uh, we'll have to dissect his other appearances here. Has does anybody else that... ever seen him? No, I don't think so. Because he is the guy that is wanted by the Ministry.
0: Right, so... So there is that, a Tuttle. There is a Tuttle out there, but the guy who visits Sam... Now, I know this is a stretch. Most likely, the intention from the director in the movie is that he does exist, but... Is it possible that Sam's also visualizing this internally? Because the end of the movie, when we'll get there, kind of leaves me thinking how much of this is really in his head.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Ah, I would never thought of that before. That's I mean, just just thinking about Terry Gilliam and his work. Like I'd say that's, that's certainly a possibility. I'd need to. Damn, I wish I would thought of that before, because then I could I'd like to go back and look to see if there's other evidence of, <laughs> of that being the case. It's really fascinating. What's yeah. in the box? That's all know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not my club, but whatever. That's really what we it's want to know, a, right? Yeah, I like the uh, the two repairmen here with you know Bob Hoskins in his pre Super Mario days playing. <laughs> yes, I wrote that Super down. Mario. It's yeah, <laughs> Luigi show up. <laughs> it totally is. It totally is. Yeah, because the tall, lanky guy is Luigi. Yeah, the tall, lanky guy, the short, fat guy. They're plumbers. It's Bob Hoskins. <laughs> I don't think it's a coincidence, folks. No, I don't think it's a coincidence. But the question is, is what came first? It was Mario Brothers movie or this thing? Oh, hey, man. Chicken and the egg, man. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a Uh, paradox. It's (laughs) a time period. It started in the future (laughs) and got bigger as it went to the past. That's what happened here. It's a chicken and the egg, Will.
0: The chicken chicken and the egg. egg. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I always crack up when he says that. Me too. Great line.
1: Uh, (laughs) I like their exchange here. He's like, he's like, oh, it's fine. It's all it, it fixed itself. He said, oh, it fixed itself. Like, how does it? how did it fix itself uh, you know i thought it was pretty funny like these guys are so bound to the paperwork like they're like nope we got called here it's broken we got to have a look eventually you know it's kind of needy turns the paperwork back against them to get rid of them so they leave and then i love how tuttle exits the scene there he has like his, oh, yeah. his <laughs> zip line and
0: <laughs> it's not even just a zip line across like chuck norris style this is like Something just goes straight almost vertically down. This is like sixty yeah. Spider Man zip line going <laughs> Only way cooler. Yeah. No no Shut sixty us. Spider-Man's way cooler, man. Come on. Well, okay, but they had to animate that shit. They had to film this. Like they had to put stuff on the screen. Well, yeah. But I love how fast he goes and then it's kinda like this like the high pitch, like adventurous music. It's like <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's that exciting being an air conditioning repairman. I mean, sign me up, man. I, I want to go to school to to do that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we get to uh, back at the uh, the ministry here, and this is where the the refund check comes up. And again, Kurtzman is freaking out with the refund. Sam's on it though. We learn here that Buttle is deceased; he's passed away. Not really sure exactly what's happened, but obviously, we uh, are meant to believe that nothing good has happened. So Sam finds
0: the widow travels to, but before he mentioned before he goes to see the widow. I just wanted to shout out, I love that, I think this is the first glimpse you get of the bureaucratic paperwork that yeah. goes up the tube.
1: Yeah, they're using yeah they're using the tubes there and like up,
0: yeah. and then whoosh, right yeah. back down. So this is yeah. like straight out of, you know, Futurama, The Simpsons, and it's like I get the classic line where Mar- when Marge went to work at the power plant and Homer goes, oh, don't worry, Marge, the tube knows where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> and it yeah. goes out into a, like a beaver dam. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's dumped up. <laughs>
1: what a crazy contraption the the pneumatic tube i mean uh, i love it i wish i wish we had it at work man i kind of wish we had it as well it yeah there's something very satisfying about it you know like and it's gone yeah it's way better than like the ding on the email you get there
0: yeah it's very cool you can change your email sound to that just
1: find it yeah but it it doesn't actually send something through a physical tube though which is part of what I'm looking for. Oh, you know, Hey, I can make my phone sound like the communicator from star Trek, but it's not the same if I can't flip it open and say, Kirk here just need doesn't have a flip have phone. Man. Yeah. <laughs> a flip phone. Do they even make that shit anymore? Well, I'm sure he can find it. That would look more out of place than the uh, telephones
0: in this movie. Oh yes, that's for sure. Okay.
1: So Sam, he uh, kind of chases down the, the widow, Mrs. Buttle. I thought this was fun. This was funny as well, because, you know, he's obviously super uncomfortable, but he's uncomfortable because, you know, he's trying to pass the buck. For the mistake that was made. And, you know, the fact that her husband is dead. Nah, not a big deal. The fact that we made a mistake. Oh, yeah, that's a problem. But it wasn't our fault. Don't worry about that.
0: Signature is the most important thing. You must sign the the receipt. Yeah. doesn't matter if your husband's dead or how he died. The receipt is priority number one. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's right. The receipt is priority number one. Just making this shit go away. Yeah. And that's the only thing. And she's like practically catatonic. Fucking hole in her ceiling. And, you know... Uh, Jonathan Price's performance here was really excellent it's it's hard to act uncomfortable and he, he you know he he totally nails it I think I think that uh, he did a good job here so you know maybe we'll just you know kind of s- we'll, we'll pause there uh, you know Jonathan Price to you how's he doing so far for you
0: Uh mixed so far uh, surprisingly I think he's like I, I agree with you when you're talking about that he when he has to act uncomfortable I think that's more suits him in these scenes Like when he's kind of like shy, when he's kind of like insecure. Mm -hmm. I think later on when he has to pull off some of the satire and the jokes and the Lando Calrissian, yeehaw, you know, I I, I think he loses me in some scenes. Okay, we have to point that out. Yeah, performance. So in this movie, but so far, okay. Even in some of his like dream sequences where he's fighting that samurai warrior, it looks a little out of place. In my opinion, it didn't have yeah. the body language to pull off some of that, but I know it's a dream sequence. It's not, we're not watching Nick's martial arts here, but you know you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. It's kind uh, of a, yeah, a, a, bit, a bit of a mixed overall feeling when it comes to him, but that's his speaking about the movie as a whole.
1: Yeah. Okay. We haven't talked too
0: much about the dream sequences yet because I was, you know, we've got to pull that
1: out and we'll talk about them at the end there. Um sure. Okay, no, fair enough. Uh, mixed performance. I mean, I can see where you're coming from there. I, I think, uh, I mean, for me, it's working. Uh, you know, the scenes that you're talking about where he's a bit different, like with the with the Lando Calrissian cowboy whoopity-doo. Uh, I, I mean, that worked for me because he, it was so out of place for him. It was awkward to hear it from him, but, you know, that kind of felt like it should sound bizarre coming from, you know, this character is just, you know, a bureaucrat, kind of a nobody. But anyway, so he, uh, he sees jill through the uh hole in the ceiling and again you know the girl you know the girl of his dreams so he tries chasing her down uh but uh she roars her way in this big truck you know in his little i don't even know what kind of what is that thing that he's driving there i mean that thing had to be custom made for this
0: yeah it's the first smart car (laughs) it's what it's the first smart car it's the first smart car yeah exactly (laughs) or the first what is it called what are those small little cars that used to be on the roads all the time they were popular they're not oh, smart cars. What were they called? The minis, the Mini yeah. Cooper? Not the Mini Cooper. It was something even smaller than that. The one where it literally has no back seat and trunk that people uh, were driving about five to ten years ago. Well, I don't know. It's that's
1: not the. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, but it's basically the the smart car now. That's what we have now, right? This, yeah. this little this little piece that doesn't even. Let's like, eh, not fucking up on blocks. Like they yeah. stole his
0: tires. Things been completely
1: dismantled.
0: Yeah, I but again, the sad. art deco design of that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. It was pretty neat, but I'm surprised Jonathan Price looked like he could hardly fit in that thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know how he fucking shoehorned his way into that thing. Yeah. I like how it opens too, like the whole roof like has to come off in order for him to get in and out of the thing. Yeah. So back to the ministry, he's got her name. Now he finds the name from one of the kids at uh, at the apartment complex there. Her name's kind of behind a firewall in order to get to it. He needs to accept that that promotion, so... He gets a printout. He knows he has to accept the promotion. You know, we get a little scene where he gets back to his apartment, and the whole place is ripped apart. Mario and Luigi have taken apart the whole place. There's ducts and pipes and all manner of shit all over the place. They've totally messed up his his apartment. There, trying to fix his uh, his air conditioning. So, you know, again, think you know, his world's starting to kind of come apart.
0: See, I get that, but uh, for these scenes, I really didn't enjoy these scenes. I think it starts to slow the movie down a little bit here. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying, and I get the direction or the intention of the writing is that, okay, showing that his world is unraveling. He has no control. The bureaucracy is on to him, in a sense, through these central yeah. services of workers. Because now everything is exposed in his, depart- in his apartment, right? All the ducts yeah. are everywhere. All the piping yeah. is everywhere. So I, I get the symbolism. I just felt these scenes really kind of slowed the movie down. I really felt that aside from the introduction of Mario and Luigi here, I really didn't get their purpose in the movie.
1: I think I actually tend to agree with you because we already get the impression that is, you know, things are kind of crumbling and, you know, in the bureaucracy and this stuff's probably not necessary. And it is even when I as I was attempting to write the synopsis, this is the stuff that I found like, OK, this is really kind of bogging down. I think you're right that these scenes are probably not necessary. So Sam gets invited to uh, to a party where that his mother is throwing. So he shows up there and his intention here is to uh, try to get his promotion back. You know, so there's some sort of awkward exchanges. Uh, Jack is there with his wife. There's a little awkward exchange there where she says she's had some work done. He runs into... The minister, correct? Yeah, the minister. Yeah. You know, he's, he's helping him out in the bathroom. It's kind of an awkward scene. Uh, but this is where he... Uh, sort of lobbies to have the promotion again so that he can have access to the information he needs in order to find Jill. So, uh, I mean, what did you think of the party here? I mean, again, this is probably a part where, you know, it's slowing proceedings down a little bit. I suppose it's necessary. Well, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's, I didn't think it was necessarily necessary to have him be able to get his promotion back
0: in order to move the plot along. I don't know yeah, what do you I think? think. I think the intention here is maybe to inject some humor into the movie from a audience standpoint, because this is a satire. So you had a little bit more of a physical comedy in here, especially with the lady, like the the mother's friend keeps talking about her cosmetic stuff. And, and the same with the mom. And, and then also, you know, dealing with a minister, getting out of the wheelchair, going to the bathroom and all that stuff. But also they're trying to show how he knows that code for the elevator where he gets that from right so right they just yeah throw, they just throw that in there i think they could have done a better way of getting that across if that this whole party scene was just for that they could mm-hmm. have found a better way a more creative way of doing it because i feel the humor here isn't the greatest but again i think this is more of a british is this film more definitely more of a british feel i don't know if it's like we call this a domestically made film i think this is a international film correct I would say you'd have to classify it as a, as a British film. As a British film. So I think maybe this is more targeted for that British snobby audience or that satire of how they act mm-hmm. and like how the first class acts, right? Yeah. So the middle yeah. and lower class, uh, people over in Europe, uh, can, in Britain can actually relate and laugh at that satire. Like right. We're poking fun at the upper class here. Yeah, that's so for, that's a good point. But for North American domestic audiences, I get that. But the humor just falls a little flat. I can tell you right now, especially for modern day audiences, I don't know how much the humor in this movie is really going to fly.
1: Well, yeah, I think uh, and yeah, I guess we can, you know, we could probably talk about that once we sort of wrap it up. But I agree. I mean, a lot of the humor here, even for myself, it's like yeah, I get that it's funny on an intellectual basis, but I'm not necessarily laughing out loud at a lot of the jokes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What I did like, and I mean, I didn't laugh out loud about it, but when Sam, you know, shows up for work at his new job and he's, he goes up to whatever the 30th floor and it's just a, a series of columns and doors and like way down in the distance, you see like just a flurry of activity, people walking across and okay. the music comes probably up. Probably my and favorite looks, scene in the movie. Yeah, I thought this was really, really cool. Very well shot. Well, the set direction um, here, again, beautiful. Yeah, very beautiful. Yeah. And, he, you know, he finds his office and it's just, uh, you know, he's Officer DZ slash 015. So, you know, again, he's even though he's moved up in the world, he's still just a, a random set of characters. Tiny it's just little office. Yeah, it's just yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to say in case, I'm not sure if you were going to get to it or not, but I loved this whole exchange of his boss. Like his boss is moving mm-hmm. so fast. With yeah. a flurry of people and it's just like, oh, okay, sign this, do this, that's done. Okay, this is closed. Oh, this is open. Oh, this task, this or, you know, assign that. Like he's doing it so quickly because the bureaucracy, it's like make haste. And you could see all these sayings and slogans throughout the movie for on posters on the wall. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I wrote, I think I wrote one of them down. Suspicion breeds confidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I love that. I love that one. There was another one, don't suspect a friend, report him. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And like another thing about time, it's like you cannot wait to make a decision. You must act immediately. And all those kind of things. It's like, and then you see how the top management here is doing that. Like he's just moving through everything like in a blink of an eye.
1: Yeah, and the the direction here for that scene, I mean, you really got to marvel at it because of the speed that this scene is executed at. You know, the choreography required. I mean, it's almost like a, it's like a dance. It's like a you know, it's like a lightsaber fight. They get, you know, it's got to hit exactly. It's so so quickly. I mean, great scene. Yeah, uh, very. And, and the comedy productive. here worked for me, and I, I think this works. Yeah, this works. The this satire works. works. I like the design of his office there. This, is this sort of narrow little corridor, half
0: a desk. Feels like my current office here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I hope at least you have your own desk you yeah, have to like share it with the do At least I explore. got my own little desk. I think it's a bit smaller though. It's probably about the size of like those old exam desks in the gymnasium. Yeah. You know, yeah. where I got that yeah. little thing to write on. Does it like have a hinge on it so you can
1: like turn it up so you can actually get out of the chair properly or do you have to like <laughs> no, to sort of no, squeeze no. it? You got to squeeze it. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. But yeah, I thought the I thought this office was pretty cool and then uh, his sort of desk mate in the uh, you know next door, you know, again, that sort of mousy punk the mustache and the you know next door won't let him use his computer or anything. I kind of like this little exchange here. I mean, not necessarily... Probably not necessary to move the plot along. Again, trying to inject a little bit of humor. Uh, but, we, you know, he gets uh, he gets the ability to kind of track down Jill with the computer. Uh, the guy won't let him, you know, won't let him use it. So he finds the information. Still can't quite, you know, locate it. So there still seems to be a firewall. So he heads all the way uh, up to the 50th floor in order to get some more information. And I, I this actually, this humor... Here, I thought was funny and appropriately disturbing as well because we got this typist and she's basically what she's doing is she's transcribing an interrogation session, but all she's typing is ah oh god don't stop that's what's happening like in the torch she's just typing what's going on in the torture chamber and she's just oh well yeah, yeah
0: the bureaucracy has to even record the sounds of pain yep. yeah so I thought I was like oh I I, 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 I
1: like chuckled yeah. and I'm like oh man that's fucking horrifying yeah. And it turns out, so he goes uh, into the office, not knowing that it's Jack himself who is the interrogator. I mean, he's basically the epitome of information retrieval. And this is how he retrieves information. Comes in, he's all bloody. His uh, daughter's in the room. I was going
0: to mention, it was really weird. His daughter's there. Again, this is something like, that feels very Verhoeven. This is like Robocop. Yeah. Well, it's all good. You know, this is part of the system.
1: Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah, very distressing, you know, as we keep peeling back the layers of this society, uh, you know, it just gets uglier and uglier and uglier. So he's poking around and, you know, Jack's kind of already, they've already come across Jill. She's already on the radar. So they suspect that she's a terrorist because she's been inquiring about the
0: arrest. Anyone says anything, you're a terrorist.
1: Exactly. That's right. Anyone says anything. So the paranoia, again, you know, just speaking to what the society is like it's pretty scary and I, I i was also appropriately frightened at jack's response when you know they start talking about bottle like it was the wrong guy and jack's like i i didn't get the wrong man i got the right man it was the wrong man who was delivered to me as the right man right so what am i supposed to do about that and then he still basically when he tortured him to death you know again it's the it's the system that failed nobody is still Nobody Uh, takes responsibility because they believe in the system. Exactly. Exactly. And yet they're trying to blame the system, not themselves, for the mistake for what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, uh, you know, he says, like, I didn't know that he had a heart condition because it wasn't on Tuttle's file. Yeah, exactly. I like this exchange again. Like, it's just it's very it's it's very disconcerting. Uh, Sam gets the uh, the information, you know, finds out again, they think she's a terrorist. So he leaves the office is going to go in search of her, you know, sort of an exchange with the elevator uh, malfunctioning. But basically, Jill's there again at the porter. She thinks she's got the right forms with the right stamps. She's not getting anywhere because there's no way you can't do anything right because nobody's made any mistakes. You know, sort of a sort of an exchange there. She's
0: yelling at the at the porter And you get the elevator mishaps as he's trying to get to the lobby, but goes down to the basement and all this stuff. I think that's the scene, correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's the scene.
1: He's trying to get out of the elevator. He can see her. He's down. He's up. He's trying to get the right authorization.
0: Here's where, you know, I don't think it was very funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, It felt a little bit more Superman 4-ish to me with the Clark Kent uh, Superman swapping up and down the elevator. Oh, getting hit by the uh, hotel butler. This kind of humor didn't work. And again, maybe this is more attuned to British humor at the time.
1: Yeah. I, I And I agree with you there. I found it more frustrating than funny. I'm like, you know, we don't need all of this rigmarole. Like, He could be chasing her out of the building she could just be leaving. We don't need all this, this whole, I mean, obviously it's kind of emblematic of, you know, getting caught in the machine, getting caught in the bureaucracy. But again, we already have that picture. We're already there. So we don't need all of this. Uh, You know, we kind of skip ahead. He manages to kind of get her away They're They're being pursued at this point. She gets in the truck. You know, obviously, you know, he's over the moon because he's, you know, he's finally face to face with the one of his dreams. And she thinks that, you know, he's just a fucking... Lunatic, which I guess he kinda is, right? Right. Uh, you know, and he confesses to her that, you know, she's the woman of his dreams. She rightly, you know, kinda wonders what the hell. I kinda like the part where she, you know, she kicks him out of the out of the truck. I mean, it, you know, obviously doesn't quite doesn't quite play right, you know, and they're just
0: doing some physical comedy here. This is kind of where I again I feel that not that I need Jonathan Vryce to start pulling, you know, Jim Carrey you know, here where he's getting dragged or getting into trouble or almost falling off. But I just feel he didn't sell some of this. I don't know if they're going for Mm. humor or what they were going for. But these scenes really felt uh, they weren't cringeworthy, but they were getting there.
1: Yeah, he he didn't quite. I I, I kind of agree. I, I wasn't I don't know if it was him or just sort of the nature of these scenes. It's just not for whatever reason, it's not coming together. I think it's kind of a combination like he's he's not selling it. And they're just kind of out of place it, like things are just kind of crazy and i I don't know what that's supposed to be evocative of it just doesn't doesn't quite make sense so they're trying to outrun you know the security officers are are after them they're driving through the streets Sam's trying to be the hero he's like grab trying to grab the you know control of the truck and you know jill's she's the one who clearly knows what she's doing he doesn't know shit about anything he causes the yeah, the truck to crash and they end up in you know, this shopping center, sort of a lingerie department. She's just trying, she's still trying to get away from Sam. And he's, I guess what they're trying to go like, they're both on different ends of a relationship here. She's like, who's this fucking stranger's following me? And he's like, it's the woman of my dreams. And I think that he's too over the top. Like he's been a guy who's been in reality and he can't see the reality of this situation. And I don't, I don't know if you know, we're sort of meant to feel like he's just losing all control here, or if the, it's the writing or the performance, it's just quite. It's not capturing the situation here. Yeah, I don't and, know. It's, and I, agree. It's not, I, I think this, yeah. is,
0: this is some aspect where they're starting to drop the ball here, whether it's direction, acting, or part of the story. I also want to get into, if if you don't mind, maybe I can ask you what do you think of Jill herself and hurt the actress who plays Jill.
1: Uh, I mean, I thought she was okay. I mean, she had a certain toughness about her that I thought worked for the part, but she might have been a little bit underwritten. I mean, the most interesting scene with her was her first scene in the film where she's watching TV in the bathtub and she's smoking a joint and she's cleaning the bandage on her hand with a toothbrush. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that was the most interesting thing that she's done so far. Yeah. Everything since then, we don't know. Yeah. So now part of that might be a function of the story where we're sort of seeing her, through Sam's eyes, you know, we don't really know too much about her other than she's mad that her downstairs neighbor got wrongfully arrested. But even then, we don't know why mm-hmm. she cares so much, you know. So, I mean, I think she's doing what she can with the part, but the character itself, I'm finding a little bit underdeveloped. Yes, I agree. So the uh, Southern's department store, there's another another terrorist bomb. And, you know, there's there's some bodies like trying to tend to the injured mm-hmm. The guards show up. Sam's trying to be heroic again, fails miserably, gets knocked out. And he, uh, you know, he eventually awakens in sort of the back of a, a prisoner carrier. He's wearing a straight jacket. He's out of there. He's trying to find he's he's not sure Jill's in there. He's trying to find her. He gets out of the gets out of the truck. All right. OK, so he's back. Uh, so Sam's back at the office. He's lost track of Jill and now and he's just getting a bunch of paperwork. He's exploding. He's sort of reached the end of his rope with the, uh, the frustration and he's just shoving all of his paperwork back into the pneumatic tubes and they keep shunting them back. Right. And the whole place just kind of. And um, then he stuffs it and it gets kind of blows. Yeah. And it blows. Exactly. Yeah. So. So, again, his whole his whole world, again, it's still falling apart. You know, he goes to see Jack again He's trying to persuade him of her. In a sense, and, and they're thinking that she's in league with Tuttle and the and the terrorists. Sam's trying to convince him that it's all uh, coincidental. So as he's leaving the office, then there she is. She's waiting. So she's found him at this point. So again, I think like sort of the exchange from when they're in the truck to this point uh, is where I don't want to say everything's falling apart for me, but it's not as tight as it kind of needs to be, I don't think. Like, he no. doesn't have no, any No, I think, I
0: think the second act and part of the third act here is is not strong. I, I can see where Universal probably had some worries here, to be honest.
1: I agree with you there. There isn't a whole lot for the audience to latch on to. I mean, I think that it was easy enough to identify with Sam through, through the first act and most of the second. You know, we all get a day job to go to. We all know about bureaucracy and paperwork. But when things kind of start going upside down, uh, his behavior doesn't seem consistent and the, you know, the events just, I don't know, just does quite add up. And then she just sort of shows up. Yeah. You know, and now they're in love for some
0: reason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So again, I don't know if this is a British thing because I, I haven't seen too many British movies. If we can we classify this as a British movie. But again, I felt even though, what was uh, the title? Is it a, a Quiet Earth or The Quiet Earth? Even though that was a New Zealand movie, it had a similar things. Like they just fall in love. Just like that. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, this is also. I mean, Anakin and Padme did the same thing. So, yeah, exactly.
1: After, after, after he, uh, after he murdered Death, killed an entire village.
0: So, so in comparison to that, this this makes a lot of sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whew, okay. okay, now we've got context. Uh, it's all good. Anyway, so Jill and Sam head back to uh, Sam's apartment again. The place is just messed up. It's a complete junk pile now. This is where so Tuttle shows up here in front of Jill. Yes, I believe so. And, uh, you know, and he kind of turns the tables on Mario and Luigi here and their their suits filled with sewage. Again, played for laughs. It didn't really work for me, but, but, you know, fair enough. Anyway, so they, they head back to uh, so they head to Sam's mother's house so sam knows that uh, it's going to be empty and that's a good place to sort of hide out lie low while he goes back to the ministry of information and hits uh, his objective to basically to kill jill in their system so that they'll Erase stop chasing
0: from existing.
1: yeah which effectively works except he doesn't realize that they're now on his trail and uh, he comes back to uh, the house and uh, she's all Turned on all of a sudden with this stranger she's trying on his mom's wigs which is just straight creepy and the line she says here is she's like he's like, uh, I've killed you Jill Layton is dead and she's like, care for a bit of necrophilia <laughs> yeah. and I was like, oh man that shit's dark man <laughs> yeah, I, I laughed though I thought that was nice I laughed life. too I was like, oh that's some kinky shit but yeah that was funny it was it was definitely funny short-lived uh, so they wake up. You know, he's going to live happily ever after. Again, the, the the troops show up, much in the same way as the very first scene in the film. You know, hole in the ceiling, kicking in the doors, flying in through the glass, uh, through the windows, and you know, it's it. You know, he's worried that it's her, but they're there for him. Green kind of goes to black. We we hear a scream, shots ring out. So I guess that's that's it for her. Now, I kind of like what comes next here. So he's, you know, he's strapped into a chair and he's kind of, he keeps kind of going through these sections of the ministry there and he's, you know, seeing
0: other people. He's kind of, you know. Yeah, I love in, this part. This is one of, one of the better scenes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this is very cool here. You know, you, you see. I'd say you'd see all these different branches of the bureaucracy saying, this is how much paperwork you have. You have to do this. You have to do this. Oh, but if you plead guilty, you just have to sign away all of your assets to us. But we'll give it back to you or something like that. You know, it's like he's signing away more of whatever minimal rights he already had. Yeah. And you see all these different levels of the bureaucracy from law to finance to rights to the ministry, everything. Everything is there. All the while in the background, you see, I think it's a conveyor belt of people going to be tortured. That's right. Yeah, it's basically
1: a conveyor belt of people going to be tortured. Exactly, it's like a well-organized Guantanamo yeah. here. And uh, yeah, that's that's a great observation. All of these, you know, various forms of government—they're all hooked in. What's effectively the, you know, the different departments of the Ministry of Information there now, like you say, you yeah, know, this they're is satire, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's easier for you if you just say you're
0: guilty. Yeah, it's easier for you just to say you're guilty. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. Oh, but at the same time. Behind the curtain here, we're about to, you know, saw off your nuts. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know,
1: they do the Casino Royale thing with like
0: the <laughs> like the the
1: ball and chain under the chair there. Well, it, uh.
0: essentially, like he's going to be castrated, just like, you know, essentially all of us pretty much are when it comes to the system. And this is, you know, Gilliam saying he's poking fun at government in its itself, like the existence yeah. of government, the existence of the system. That's right.
1: And the impossibility of the escape from it. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. there's no way he's getting out of this. No. Now, we can see that right now. There's no way he can get out of this. There's no escape. I love the I love the design of that set where he's just at the center of that room and the vaulted the huge ceiling. It looks like they're inside like a nuclear reactor column.
0: No, 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 no! no. I told you the first X Men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is yeah. Xavier's. What is it called? Network. Cerebro. Cerebro. This is
1: Cerebro. Cerebro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Cerebro. If Cerebro wanted to chop off your nuts and then feed them to yourself down your throat, yes, that's, <laughs> that's what this room is. Yeah. Now what I absolutely loved is you got that long shot and you see Sam sort of in the distance and we're walk and we're the camera's following behind the interrogator's shoulder. Yeah and he walks down and as soon as he recognizes who it is, his face turns back to the camera. he's wearing that mask, you is know, the, like the that. Pig mask or baby mask? Yeah the it's the baby mask. Yeah the baby mask. Yeah so but it kind of looks like a pig face too. It's like yeah. a pig man. Pigman pig, baby. Pig man. He's back. Yeah oh, he's back. <laughs> pig man I love that shot. He turns back to the camera and he looks forward at back of sammy looks back and like oh, man i love that shot because i mean we don't i mean it's jack under the mask you don't really exactly see him yet but i thought that was oh, i love that shot oh, that was fantastic <laughs> jack so good. is dead my friend <laughs> you can call me Pigman. man <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they've got this exchange here and sam's like i you know i'm innocent i'm scared and jack's like you know he says something like this is a professional relationship And there's that, you know, they got the the torture implements there. I mean, everything's just looking like "Ah, he's fucked. It's all it's all gone to shit. And then just for a second there, like it looks like he's getting rescued. There's Tuttle and his, uh, you know, I guess a team of commandos they are repelling down from the from the opening in the ceiling. They tap Jack in the head there through the mask. And we got a big, a big battle, but obviously it becomes, it becomes pretty obvious pretty soon that, you know, this is just a, you know, this becomes just a dream as things keep going on all in his mind there. I I, I love that scene where he's escaping with Tuttle and they're sort of in the, in the shopping center there yeah, the the papers, the the
0: newspapers flying around. Yeah. Everything just consumes him. And this is another thing where I go back and say, did he even exist? Uh,
1: well, I, and like I say, I think you've got a good argument there because, you know, is again, I got to go back and see if there's more evidence to suggest that. Because I think that would be really interesting if – I think it's more interesting if he didn't exist. It was just a figment of his imagination because then that would actually give a lot more weight to what's happening now with the breakout scene. But then, then he's gone. Like he pulls an Obi-Wan Kenobi in the midst of those newspapers and boom, Tuttle has vanished. Uh, and then shit gets weird. So he keeps –
0: he's kind of going deeper and deeper into his own mind there. Going back, though, sorry, to be to be honest, my initial thought when this was happening was that he was going to suffocate and die thanks to, again, consumerism, Hmm. like all of these ads on the newspapers, because everywhere in this movie, we see it on the roads, like the truck when it's going through that long stretch of road. It's just surrounded by ads and like in the news and the propaganda, all of it, you know, being symbolic in that newspaper. And it would have just Stra was suffocated and killed a hero who yeah. was Tuttle. So initially yeah. I thought that was I mm. was a laugh, but when he disappeared, I said, Oh, so maybe he doesn't exist. Mm. Well, that's interesting. But I guess you could I mean you could still look at it the same way,
1: even if Tuttle was a real guy, is this I mean, Tuttle's the man that Sam wanted to be, and he is suffocated at this point. He's gone, right? So yeah. that piece of his personality, whether it was, you know, you imagined him or not, but he identified a piece of his personality with Tuttle,
0: the hero. And, and that piece of always now been snuffed out, right? No, no, good yeah. point because like he's slowly dying in that chair or yeah. losing himself in that chair. So this is like what the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind or something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this is like little pieces going away and we're seeing it disappear on screen. Right, right. Yeah. Good <laughs> reference, man. Yeah. Nice work. Oh, well, thank you. I love that movie. That's um, why I'm here. <laughs> 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 Your clones are very impressive. <laughs>
1: So we get to the, uh, you know, again, he's he's just kind of spiraling uh, ever further down. Eventually, Sam finds himself house in the countryside. Uh, Jill's alive. Everything's all good. And then, you know, we kind of, we pull out. He says the line, uh, you know, she, she asks him uh, in his dream there. She says, Did you sleep well? And he's like, he says, I don't dream anymore. So, you know, again, his... His fantasy's been shattered because he doesn't have a reality anymore. His mind's broken. And they say like he's got away from us and he's he's gone. It's just catatonic in the torture chair, so they've they've completely eradicated his personality. Music starts up bizarre Brazil and that's it. The end. The
0: end. You did miss one aspect though as part of that end sequence is when he went to the funeral home. Oh yeah, all right. The funeral home, yeah. Right, and his mother was there, but she was younger. And then it was Jill after she turned around again. Yeah, it that's right. getting younger and younger. And then at last, not least, it was Jill. What did you make of this? Of the funeral
1: scene, you're right. I did for I did skip over it there. But uh, what did you make of this?
0: Initially, I didn't think of it that any. But as we're talking about it now, I'm thinking that you know he was always trying to escape his mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the control she was one of those layers of control over his life right and then she kept getting younger and younger and younger and then it became jill his desires was getting away from that control away from her and go and be free with jill and as we've talked about his mind was slowly losing grip of reality and logistical sense mm-hmm. showing yeah. that is jill and then that's why he's, he's shown his catatonic that's why none of this makes sense
1: Well, you know what? I mean, what you say makes sense. I think I have to agree with you there. I mean, I've always had a little bit of trouble with this scene. But, you know, talking it out like he's always been, you know, like we were saying before, he's always been rebelling against her. I mean, otherwise, you know, he was he was a company man and and wasn't interested in being anti-establishment, except when it came to his mother but they kind of go on – it's like they're going on opposite arcs. Like he's going further and further down one road. Like He's going for, further. He's getting older. And she's sort of tracing an opposite path, right? Like she's becoming younger. She's becoming more successful. But I'm not sure – like I, I'm not sure what, what she – throughout the movie, I'm not sure what she – like she feels like she's a metaphor for something. The mother? Yeah. Or Jill? No, the mother. Oh, man. They kind of horseshoe into each other, I guess, like Jill and his mother. Right. I'm honestly not sure what the end result of this scene where she basically becomes Jill. Like, I'm not sure what it's saying to me, to be honest.
0: Yeah, it's a bit confusing. I just look at the fact that he is now finally free. But the only way he became free and got his desires of being free and to be with Jill was really to have a full frontal lobotomy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the control of this dystopian future. The way the bureaucracy has control over its citizens, that's pretty much either death or this, because he seems pretty content being lobotomized at the end.
1: Yeah, it is the only escape. And that's one of the things that Terry Gilliam has said about the film when asked what it's about. Uh, His quote is, you know, it's about the impossibility of escape from reality. So, You know, even though this is a reality, though, the weather on the beach is shit today. You can't escape it. But this is how at least one man has tried to do so. Now, whether he's successful or not, I mean, the only way to escape reality is to go insane,
0: I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see all the other citizens, they all desperately want to escape reality, too. And all they have is a shitty TV show. But they're all going to do it because the bureaucracy has not let them have anything else.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, the establishment still has all the control. Yes. So even if you escape, you're still fucked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're still fucked. Uh, So that's the film. What's your overall impression? You know, just
0: sort of general thoughts you know, after having watched this piece of work. For the most part very well filmed. I like what Gilliam here is trying to say, as we've talked about, right, that escape from oppression, rebellion against oppression, the political satire of our own, how the system has control over all of us and yeah. the impossibility to escape from that system, a futile attempt. So he's poking yeah. fun at all of that. And I love that political satire because it's subtle. I mean, some of it is on your nose, but some of it is is subtle enough uh for me to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's there mm-hmm. that makes you think but some of the movie also, like, I can see uh, Gilliam's weaknesses as a writer and a director for some of the second act, as we've talked about. I yeah. think his relationship with Jill, some of the action scenes, some of the humor. Maybe I can't relate to it because I'm not British. Maybe it's a bit outdated from that's, it's a little bit too faulty towers maybe in my opinion mm. so i think it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of it being a science fiction movie i did enjoy that aspect of showing this potential dystopian future i love all of the set design the practical sets the, the weird technology the zany technology that's out there like the doc brown references we have even though none of this stuff like is streamlined and it's all outdated this isn't Star Trek. This is something yeah. that's, as we said, Art Deco feel, and none of this stuff could come to fruition because we've already surpassed everything here. Right. But for modern audiences, I don't think they'd be able to get into this movie at all.
1: Yeah, I, I think I agree with you there. I mean, for modern audiences, I don't know how you'd approach this film. I don't know how you'd get into this film. It's
0: uh, there's modern context for this type of movie, but yeah, like the general theme is universal it will never go yeah. away unless the world becomes a radically different place. But people will not be able to sit through this film. And I think the pacing's part of the problem. I think the acting also, like Jonathan Price, we talked about it's a mixed bag. He didn't nail some of the aspects of this movie. We didn't even talk about the dream sequences now.
1: Though. Yeah. Let's get into the dream sequences. So, you know, there's not too much going on. He's flying through the sky. You know, he sees the woman. She's calling his name. It's all up in the clouds. You know, it's very ethereal. As the dream sequences progress... In the trenches, if you will, it's dark. It's kind of got a back alley feel, but they're, you know, it's... Grimy. It's just sort of, yeah, yeah, grimy, strange, mutated creatures. You got that stone, you know, creatures kind of coming up out of the ground there. There's that sort of samurai creature that he has to fight. And there's that, you know, there's the image of the woman of, of Jill, basically, in that sort of floating cage, but it's chained down. Yeah. Basically, the thrust of all of those fantasies is he's fighting against evil but that evil is the bureaucracy which is you know that's symbolized by you know that the stone is chained to the ground right and she's emblematic of what he wants which is the freedom whether it's intellectual freedom or just personal freedom or whatever but she you know she's floating right they've got that idea of being up in the sky but she's that's heaven whether that's his heaven or that's his freedom
0: but it's just it's stuck to the ground yeah yeah exactly can't get there and he can't quite free it. Yeah, yeah, and then she's even going, getting, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, she's in the sky, but she's also going lower and lower to the ground as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's basically right. Yeah. Yeah. So then even the system has got a hold of her as well. Yeah, it, it has a hold. Yeah. That's right.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, just from a high level, like, what did you think of the sequences here? Like, how they were, just how they looked, how they were shot?
0: I love the concept of the first part of the sequences where he's flying and he's seeing the girl and he wants to be free. But I think as the movie went on and we kept getting more and more of it, I think this it started to not work for me. It was a bit mm-hmm. too much in this dream sequence world. Yeah. I love the set design. I love the costumes, but it just a little too awkward. Again, I think it just kind of stalled the movie a little bit. I think you could have done something zany within the context of his life. Instead, that would have made it a bit more interesting. Again, maybe more of a relationship with Tuttle, for example. Like he's mm-hmm. in and out of his existence.
1: I think that that's actually a really interesting idea because I I, I agree that... I mean, the dream sequences, it's a, it's a cool idea because, you know, he's pulling in some more fantastical imagery here. But it's a little on the nose, I think, with the metaphors. I mean, we understand through the course of the film, you know, what he's fighting against. And I don't think we need the dream sequences to tell us what he's fighting for. And I agree. I think something more zany in the course of his real life, like his relationship with Tuttle, for example, would probably, I mean, I think it would have been more effective in portraying what this fight against the establishment, but it also would have moved the film along a bit better. Yeah, I agree. Even though a lot of it looks cool and I think it does the job, like you, you, you get what they're talking about. It doesn't really have any bearing on plot at the end of the day.
0: So how about your thoughts, high level thoughts, unless you have another question?
1: Yeah, I mean, high level, when I first encountered this film, you know, as a young guy, early 20s, this is the type of film that appeals to a young university student, I think. Like the common themes like, you know, you know, the heroes and the oppressive system, you know, trying to break out is very dystopian. I mean, I always loved that concept. And what I love about the film is how layered it is. I mean, you could talk about it for hours. There's still so much there. There's a lot of meat. And you could talk about the characters and the themes and what everybody represents forever. And I mean, I love that in my in my movies. Like I'm forced to pay attention to what's actually happening on screen and I'm forced to ponder it. That's one thing I like about Terry Gilliam as a filmmaker. I mean, he's had a couple of duds, but he's had a couple of movies where you know, you get to sit and dissect it. Unfortunately, that comes at the cost of, you know, a narrative that you know as we've said kind of it slogs in places you know yeah which is unfortunate i think because i think that it could still it could be a tighter film a more well-paced film without losing all of the layers all of the meat that's actually here so it is a bit of a mixed bag in that sense but it's not like anything else that's for sure no that's true what do you think about you know made at a time when you know we didn't really live in a world where You know, terrorist bombings were kind of the order of the day where terrorism was a kind of a real threat in the Western world. And today we kind of live in that world a little bit more for sure. So do you think that there's, you know, do you think that that context provides some more relevancy, you know, to this film for a modern audience?
0: In a sense. But the problem is, is they don't really focus on that too much. Since you did bring it up, this is something I did want to ask you. It just didn't have a pen, so I keep forgetting to ask. I have the personal belief that to maintain control over society, this government is responsible for all the terrorist bombings themselves. Hmm. Interesting. In my opinion, that's not far based on where you lie in the conspiracy rainbow. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's that far away from the truth either in terms of reality.
1: Well, there's certainly. I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made there. I mean... I could see that being the case. The only thing that...
0: Oh, man, that's really interesting. But in Um, this film, I believe they are the ones that are responsible. Even Jill says, have you ever seen a terrorist? That's right. She does say that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know...
1: Which is a good line. Yeah. yeah, Which is a good line, but... She says, oh, it's only my first day. But yeah, that's a... You're right.
0: Exactly. So I wouldn't be surprised in the world that Terry Gilliam has made here that... There are no terrorists. The government is the one who is creating this chaos to instill fear to maintain control.
1: Uh, you know, I I had never I never thought I mean, I've seen this movie like 10 times and, you know, you're bringing up stuff I'd never thought of. Fear um,
0: will keep the local systems in line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't be too impressed with this technological terror you've created. OK, let me tell you. The ability to destroy a department store pales in comparison <laughs> to the power of a Japanese anime angel in ar- in body armor. OK, <laughs> you know, you could be right about that. The only thing I'd say that might. Well, shit, it's hard to say. I can't I can't disprove that. You know, this actually reminds me just to take a bit of a segue, but it's still another Terry Gilliam film. So what's OK? It takes me back to a conversation I had with my dad about 12 Monkeys which is probably the more famous Gilliam film. And in my, in my dad's opinion, 12 Monkeys takes place entirely in the mind of the boy at the airport who becomes Bruce Willis as an adult. But, you know, and I was like, I can't say anything that disproves what you're saying. Right. I can't I mean, that's actually a very legitimate point. I never thought about it. And that's one of the great things about this movie is, you know, it suggests things that are there. I mean, there's there's so many layers here that I'd say that that's absolutely a possibility. I think that because the populace seems so numbed to the fact that there are these terrorist bombings, I'd wonder if that was the case. Like, it seems ineffective yeah, an ineffective maybe. method of control because nobody gives a shit anyway.
0: Or maybe they used to, and now they're just used to it. And this is just them, just once in a while. Okay, add another one. Okay, yeah. add another one. You know, let's just keep it, keep it going.
1: Fixing brains got out of got my, him my him lunch. Where we want them. Yeah, yeah, we got, yeah, we got them where we want them. Yeah, well, I thought good. I had this movie inside and out, man. And like you're bringing up shit. Hey, man, that's what this podcast is for, right? That's right. That's- your shit up, right? <laughs> essentially. That's right. Fucking your shit up since 2015. Podcast (laughs) of rare antiquities. I don't know, man. What are your why don't we go to final thoughts? Why don't you give me what you're thinking? Is this a rare antiquity? Do you recommend it? And so
0: on. I'll start with saying that I've always wanted to see Brazil. It's something that, again, as I mentioned, it was always on my radar. I always kept hearing about it. I keep seeing it pop up on all these lists of movies you got to see before you die or the great science fiction movies that you must see. And I was super hyped when I saw that menu screen. I was like, oh, shit, this is so awesome. I was literally sitting there for 20 <laughs> minutes waiting for my wife to join yeah. me. Uh, and funny story is 20 minutes after the movie started, my wife left because she was bored. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but saying that, I mean, I did. There are a lot of layers here. There are a lot of strengths to this movie, but it, it is a mixed bag. It, it kind of reminds me of the movie we did. You recommended before, like The Quiet Earth. Uh, yeah. Like there are. Straw, like I love the political satire here. There are some strong twists and science fiction elements in the third act. I think the second act drops the ball a little bit. Think they could have picked somebody better than Jonathan Price to really carry the movie. I like Jonathan Price in other roles. But I just felt he was really miscast here. Hmm. I think he was a little out of his element, in my opinion. And I think some of the humor just kind of fell on deaf ears for me because I'm not sure if I was the target audience, right? Like maybe as we talked about right. British humor. I'm not sure. Even though it was witty, it made me think. Uh, and I like that. That's a very, it's a huge strength. As you mentioned at the beginning of the movie, I think the biggest strength uh, at the beginning of the podcast, I think the biggest strength of this movie is the Art Deco set design mm-hmm. and, and the cinematography. It's just gorgeous to look at. I even like the score for the most part. Mm -hmm. some aspects of the score, is not the greatest or the strongest, but I really do like some of the score here. It's really well composed. It brings out the mood, kind of like eerie, creepy, yet it can be fun. It kind of like, you know, balances that line really well there from like not going overly dark to not being overly fun. But I don't know if that maybe is a weakness because it it had a problem with the tone. Overall, I, I did enjoy the movie. And I would recommend it, especially to people who like science fiction movies. But it's it's a very weak recommend. In my opinion, this is not a timeless classic. I think it's not dated well, as we talked about, for modern audiences to get into enough for me to recommend. And there's too, too many faults of the movie for me to say it's a rare antiquity.
1: So, I mean, I'll give you my thoughts. I mean, I, I definitely agree with a lot of what you said. I think the look of the film is is its greatest strength. The cinematography is great. The set designs absolutely fantastic. I mean, you get right down to uh, even, the, you know, the costumes, fantastic. Everything has this really consistent look. It's got the look of this sort of ordered society that is crumbling behind the scenes that's just ready to fall apart at, you know, the smallest, in this case, you know, Bug thrown into the gears, and I thought that was consistent throughout. I was much more positive with Jonathan Price's performance. I thought he was very well cast because we needed an awkward accountant, paper pusher, uh, pencil pusher, paper shuffler in this role, and I thought he he nailed that. The look of him lends itself to you know this type of guy, sort of just a regular guy who sits behind a desk and you know does TPS reports all day long or whatever it is. So I thought that was great. Um, Again, I've mentioned how much I'm in love with Ian Holm in a bit part. And uh, Robert De Niro, I mean, he's only in a couple scenes. You don't see De Niro taking bit parts very often. you know, again, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I like how he moved in the role. I thought uh, it was kind of neat. But certainly the film has the pacing problems that you said. It's... Towards the end of the second act, things start to drag, you know, and that hurts because it's not really necessary to further the plot or further the characters. So that's sort of too bad there. I think there's lots to get into here. I I, I totally agree that modern audiences are going to have a huge, huge problem getting into this. It's not like how movies are made today. Shit, it's not like how movies were made in 1985 when it came out the first fucking time. So it's hard to find a place for it. But its uniqueness has to be witnessed, I think. Uh, I'm giving it a recommendation. In my opinion, it's a rare antiquity because it is not what you're going to see pretty much anywhere else. It's got its problems, no doubt. But I don't know. Got to see it to believe it, I guess. So there you have it. Well, that's Brazil, episode 13. Uh, Harry, please surprise and delight me with your pick for our next episode.
0: Well, we have hinted at his presence a few times throughout the podcast. There's no stopping him. He doesn't feel pity or remorse. And he will not stop until we analyze and discuss the brilliant, the zany Nicholas Cage in the Coen Brothers cult classic, raising arizona oh shit yes sir <laughs> <laughs> i have I, not seen that movie since i was probably i don't know 13 14 15 years old i have never seen it oh there you go and so. i am a coen brothers fan so
1: right on to you brother i i can't wait to see nicholas cage in his uh pre
0: batshit crazy glory <laughs> <laughs> hey man Andy cage is the shit <laughs> Any cage is a good cage. <laughs> Any cage is a good cage. Hey, Matt,
1: we needed to get Cage. I'm surprised it took this long. You know what? You're absolutely right. Uh, how have we not done the Nicholas Cage classics such as Next, <laughs> Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance? That one where he's a fucking Elvis impersonator. I mean, shit. Hey, Matt, they're all good. They're Trust they're me. all good. They're all they're rare all antiquities. Well, they're all something, that's for sure. <laughs> In a thousand years, it may be worth something. <laughs> <laughs> it takes something worthless, you bury it in the dirt for a thousand years, and the next thing you know, it's worth a million dollars. Yes. <laughs> all right,
0: man. No, nope, sounds good. Looking forward to do that one.
1: Yep, can't wait. Uh, thanks for doing this one, man. And uh, all right, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. All right.